Oh, hello. Uh, you caught me admiring my Eberly stock bag. I have a few of them. And uh, the reason I admire it so much and I love using their gear is because it's amazing. So the, one of the other reasons I love Eberly stock is they support uh, military and law enforcement openly. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is there are other companies out there where they will make gear specifically for us, but we're more like a dirty little secret. Where Glenn Eberly, the founder and owner of Eberly stock, is a veteran, a former Olympian, and a proud supporter of not only law enforcement, but also military folks. And on top of that, they make the best gear and apparel, the bags and apparel that I've ever used. So head on over to Everly Stock, put in the ones ready code for your 10% discount, and make sure that you're supporting the folks that openly and honestly support us. Appreciate it. Hey everybody, welcome to the Ones Ready Podcast. You're in the team room with uh, Peaches and myself and a very special guest today. My good friend, the Special Reconnaissance Career Field Manager, or CFM, if I say CFM, that's who I'm referring to. And uh, we can't say his middle name, unfortunately, because this uh, podcast does reach some children. But his name is uh, Chief Master Sergeant Cox. Steve, uh, welcome to the podcast, man. How you doing? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks for waking up in the morning. Uh, you know, that's not everybody's preferred state on Sunday morning. So, uh, Also, I'm not a chief yet. They can still pull that back, and uh, I'm waiting on them to fix the glitch. So, we got a couple months. Just hang on to your stapler; you'll be all right. Uh, so, as we get going, I think um, you know what we usually do. Uh, your first time on the podcast, just um, you know, tell us a little bit about, bit about yourself. You know, where you come from, your career, your your legendary career up to this point. You know, who is legendary. Steve Fox? Yeah, man. Okay, uh, how much time we got? Time we need. <laughs> <laughs> okay uh you can edit out all the all the dumb stuff but i'm from uh i'm from cleveland originally cleveland ohio which is um important to people from cleveland at least um and uh i, I didn't necessarily grow up there my mom was in the air force she was a nurse in the air force and that's how i kind of came to <clears throat> came to uh see the military as a as a potential path so i went to college i messed that up um and decided to enlist and uh, really, I just was coming in to uh, get some money and go back to school. Um, that was 1998-ish. I actually came into the Air Force in 1999 and then uh, came in into uh, weather, not because I had a great love of weather necessarily, although I, I always kind of liked uh, science and, and stuff like that. Um, but the real reason was they uh, offered a significant bonus for weather at that time, so um, and I could do it. I, I, I met the I met the cut for that. So that's what I did. Uh, and then 9-11 happened. And uh, I think this is a lot of people's story. Um, kind of changed the way I saw, um, you know, myself and, and uh, my my duty to the nation, so to speak. And um, back then there was a career field that was a branch, really a, a shred out of uh, the weather AFSC and uh, it was called Southie and it was a way to get into uh, special operations and do stuff that was, you know, what I thought was a little closer to uh, something um, uh, deeper for the, for the, for the military and for America. So, so I got recruited by a couple of guys that at that point were in Europe as I was in Germany and um, back then, we didn't have a super formalized uh, assessment and selection process. It was more like uh, just kind of kicking dudes around and or kicking people around and see if they could withstand it. Um, and I guess I did. And, and, and then all the training kind of follows uh, from there. So that's how I that's how I came in. And, uh, and I'm glad it went down that way. Like I said, I think that's a pretty common story uh, for people, especially of our generation. Uh, you know, 9-11 was a, was a pretty strong punch in the eye and uh, changed the way um, a lot of people saw uh, their service. So uh, I'm glad I'm here. Uh, it's 22 years later, and, um, and here I am. Um, anyway, that's, that's kind of my background. Several deployments to uh, Afghanistan, several to Iraq, uh, some, some that are called deployments that I wouldn't count as deployments. One of those is the Stuttgart for uh, South Africa. Um, you know, awesome time, but uh, not necessarily the same environment as um, some of those other <laughs> <laughs> um, and A couple other cool gigs like that. I spent some time in um, 
in uh, Paycom at Sockpack and at uh, the 320th. So uh, a fairly broad base of experience. I wouldn't say um, I'm necessarily the uh, most heroic guy out there. We, we definitely have uh, some heroes in the community. I'm not one of them. I'm just uh, I just have a broad base. And, um, and it, it works for being a CFM. It doesn't necessarily work uh, in, in terms of telling heroic stories, but uh, but um, I'm, I'm happy with what I what I ended up with here. So um, what was it about the job that that, uh, you know, pulled you in? Like, you know, for a lot of us, it was, uh, you know, jumping out of planes, shooting, um, driving motorcycles, that kind of stuff. What, what was it for you? Yeah, I think similar. I mean, I, you know, the, the weather piece, uh, you get, you get to kind of, you get wrapped up in it and, um, it's, it's pretty technical. It's a, it's a long, uh, training pipe. So you do come to appreciate that maybe more than, than anybody else, which is a danger when you start going down like technical, um, kind of stove pipes, but, but definitely, uh, at the point where I was trying, looking to do something a little more exciting and, and, and more involved for, uh, what we were in at that time, the, the global war on terror. Uh, the shoot, move, communicate stuff is pretty attractive, especially to people that age. I think, and and um, and I mean, it's awesome. It's it's necessary. It's foundational. It's in the end, it's a way to get to work and and of course uh, defend yourself and, and and be offensive. But um, you know, the technical side of things it certainly certainly kept me kept me going. I, it it was always kind of um, a little nerdy, and, and maybe I like that, but. Uh, but again, I you know I don't know if there's one easy answer. That's a that's a great question. It's kind of all that stuff. SR guys are nerds. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's yeah. the run of joke. Is Trent is just an extreme nerd, uh, but he hides it he hides it well because of his hair and his sarcastic demeanor. But uh, man, that's you're number two now, Steve. So that's <laughs> hey man, I can't, I can't deny it. I'll tell you something. Like we talk a lot about kind of technical capability and what that means. And um, all my time, uh, mostly with the Army, the Rangers and uh, Special Forces downrange, um, a little bit of time with Marsoc, but mostly with the Army. And uh, those guys don't need more shooters. They they need technical capability. That's generally the, the case when you're an enabler. And, and this, you know, maybe I'm get putting the cart ahead of the horse a little bit, but when you're filling kind of an enabler role, a soft enabler, uh, they don't necessarily need you to be uh, another door kicker that needs you to be able to do your job. Of course, you have to be able to kick doors and shoot because guess what? They're going to take you out on the range and they're going to test you every single time. Um, you know, you have to be, you have to be stronger in the gym. You have to be better on the range, all those things. That's just part of being kind of an outsider on a, on a team that has existed as a team for years and you step in from nowhere and, and, uh, and, you know, you got to run higher, run faster, uh, jump, jump higher, all that stuff. But, but really what brings you to what, what, what causes you to be of value to those teams is your technical capability that they can't produce. Um, at least yeah. not. So. I had a lot of success just telling the Taliban that I'm a weather guy not to shoot at me. And uh, it worked out really, really well. <laughs> no, hey, no, guys, no, nerd, no, no. nerd here. Don't. No. 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 So, I mean, I, I, I want to kind of jump into it though and, and move forward. I'm sorry for that comment. Um, you you have this whole tactical level career and you you moved up through the ranks and uh, you spent some time in AATC uh, back in the day when we were still South T, and yeah. but I think the story of how you became the CFM and that that process from South T to SR and all the uh, misconceptions and misinformation out there we're saying misinformation these days right about Mr. about Davis what that Trump. about what that meant uh, you know South T to SR can you just like kind of jump into that a little bit. Sure. Um, yeah. So uh, let's see where to begin. Um, so I, I, I kind of split time in my career between doing, you know, what you would consider kind of special operations, aviation support and special operations ground support there. It's a little bit complicated. I, I guess I don't probably don't need to go into much detail there. But what it afforded me was a again, a broad base of experience. So I understood things from kind of both perspectives. And um uh, I had time in, in all kinds of different theaters. I had some time in uh, ATC, as, as you mentioned, Siegs, uh, doing, um, you know, really, really intense staff work, man, intense, and uh, learning how to That's type. Right. And um, uh, so all abroad base. Uh, around 2017, um, 
correct me on the dates. Uh, you can back me up on this or, or correct me, but I think it was 2017-ish, uh, the Vice Chief of Staff of the Air Force um, commissioned a force improvement program uh, upon request of the Chief of Staff of the Air Force. At that time, it was General Goldstein. And uh, a force improvement program, or FIP, this was specific to what was known then as Battlefield Airmen. So Battlefield, the Battlefield Airmen program um, was a program in the Air Force that included all the AFSCs that you can kind of ground, you can kind of um, group together as, as ground forces for the Air Force, uh, including TAC-P, Combat Control, Pararescue, um, then SAL-T. Uh, there were a few others in there, uh, all the all the related officer AFSCs, but it really was intended to go in and kind of be a grassroots look, which was, that was a favorite thing of General Goldfein's, if you know, if you guys remember, he was all about kind of ground truth and, and uh, reinvigorating squadrons and things like that. So, he was really focused on that, the, the kind of the grassroots truth of what's happening with the Battlefield Airmen program. Um, you guys could attest, like, Battlefield Airmen, I mean, the whole program really was, in many ways, kind of held together with, you know, it's, it's a sort of a euphemism, common euphemism of what, chicken wire and duct tape, like, and, and the personalities that exist in, in Battlefield Airmen are now special warfare are prone to keeping things together with with chicken wire and duct tape. I mean, we're trained that way. Like, Hey, this is what you got. Go make it happen. You know what I mean? Like, so, so that lends itself sometimes to a situation, you know, over time um, where things can start to be coming apart at the seams and it's hidden by the fact that you have a bunch of professionals that are holding it together with, you know, less than adequate resources. So I think that was general Goldfein's kind of suspicion and why he ran the program. Um, and some of those things he found to be true. And, and in one of those cases, it was the South TAFSC, which was really sort of languishing uh, for manpower. Um, things were changing in the environment as well, uh, in, the, in the global environment. I mean, the, the, the uh, military environment globally that, that sort of changed the requirement for that kind of work. Um, and so that information came to light, came, came forward to the, to the headquarters Air Force staff as a battlefare and force improvement program, uh, uh, product. It was a, it was a book. It was like a hundred some pages of, you know, South T was just a small piece of that. Um, of course, combat control had a lot of stuff in there that was relevant, that special tactics, weapon system at large, uh, pararescue, TAC-P, all those AFSCs had, uh, all those capabilities had things that. That, that required, uh, you know, some some form of need. Um, in, our, in our case, the South T, it was it was basically um, uh, pointed out that the it, it would be better served if the if the AFSC was moved from where it existed in the, in the Weather Directorate to and grouped together with the rest of the uh, Special Warfare um, AFSCs. And, and again, back then it was Battlefield Airmen. It changed the special warfare that became official in like 2019. It's not really all that important, although nobody ever liked the Battlefield Airman name. So this kind of all happened at once. They stood up the special warfare directorate. They nixed the Battlefield Airman terminology. It all became special warfare. Stood up a, a directorate, an 07 led at that time directorate inside the Pentagon uh, to look at all these capabilities holistically, which is something that we never had. Um, moved Salty into that directorate renamed it to special reconnaissance and changed the focus. So again, all this sort of happened within the space of like two years, really fast. Um, and so based on that grassroots feedback in combination with the direction from the uh, Air Force uh, A3 at that time, uh, we were we were mandated to change the AFSC, change the name and change the focus. And, and what I mean by change the focus is the, the the specialty has always been imbued with this sort of uh, foundational level of, of reconnaissance surveillance. That's really what it's all what has always been all about. The, the difference is uh, a couple of things. We never had it codified very well. We never had it standardized very well. Um, and the second thing is that we always focused on sort of the environmental factors that had to do with getting air into places. Right. Um, the environmental factors being the weather, the uh, the ocean, the the land, the terrain, uh, all those things that, that you need to know in order to fly airplanes into, you know, location X, Y, or Z. Um, that focus changed. We, we didn't completely erase that, but we diminished it by, I would, you know, rough estimate, 75%, 80%. And what we filled that white space with, white space with 
was the things that matter today in terms of the environment, in terms of getting access for airplanes. And what that boils down to um, is the electromagnetic spectrum uh, kind of environment. So, um, and more specifically, looking at ways to mitigate systems, um, you know, adversarial systems that, that deny us access. So uh, that's, that's where we changed the focus. That was our mandate. And to put it in layman's terms, we cut away a lot of the meteorology and we added in cyber and electromagnetic spectrum stuff. Um, and then the other really key uh, piece that I always hammer down on uh, five times over is we we are we are heavily invested in codifying foundational reconnaissance surveillance like that's what we do. Uh, the rest of it is the technical capability that makes us unique. But in order to be successful in a joint environment when it comes to uh, recce and surveillance, man, it, it's a lot about credibility, and it's a lot about checking the same blocks that that uh, your your sister service units are are checking. Um, and so that's where we've uh, invested the, a large part of our energy. But uh, I'll stop talking because I think I'm rambling. No, you're not rambling. I'm just sitting here thinking like, okay, how do I, how do I ask this and actually be able to get an answer out of it? The reason why is because one of the questions that we always get is uh, in terms of EW and cyber, what what is SR doing? And I know that a lot of that is still being developed. So I definitely don't want to put, you know, the cart before the horse. And we start, like, we very, very quickly go into, you know, secret and, and top secret stuff. So definitely don't want to even come close to that. But in terms of EW and cyber, well, let's just stick with EW for right now. Like, what can we expect or what can uh, people that are coming in to do SR, what can they expect in regards to EW? like in to do sure so there there are plenty of systems out there that are that are unclass um that you, you, you kind of hit uh peaches a little bit we're still building the plant so um it is a little bit of talking around stuff but uh, as a matter of fact we're going to come together at the end of this month and and really hammer down on the on the details of that but uh, you can expect some foundational training in um, sort of academics and probably some hands-on stuff. We haven't clarified that 100%, but that will happen inside your first year, uh, year and a half of, of existing in the Air Force uh, as, a, as a special reconnaissance airman. Um, you're going to get things like uh, electromagnetic theory and, and antenna theory and, and stuff like that and how kind of uh, electrons move through the uh, environment and what they do. Uh, in terms of picking up airplanes or or um, or identifying objects or how do we jam those things, all that kind of stuff. Um, how do we directionally find systems that are that are you know looking for airplanes, those kinds of things, adversarial systems. So you're gonna get you're gonna get that at least a foundational base inside um, the uh, initial portions of your training, and then we'll we'll build on that. Um, and we're still trying to figure out like how how cyber kind of connects into that and, and where that's going to exist in the pipeline. I think most of the cyber stuff we're looking at, you know, um, uh, after you get out, after you kind of graduate into your, um, your uh, operational command, I think that's where we're going to start um, layering on the cyber stuff, but, but we're still kind of figuring that out. Uh, and again, it'll be, it'll be focused on uh, gaining access for air. So yeah, at risk of getting too, um, too technical here, but, um, that's the focus. And um, to be honest with you, like when I go talk to uh, a lot of the people that are in the know on this stuff, we, we all throw around the word cyber and we throw around the word MSO. And I mean, like the reason that these things are are confusing to people is because the people that are uh, in charge of kind of putting these policies together are still putting them together. Like it's still still coming together. It's not solidified. And I think as I learn, as I go along and, and kind of see how people are thinking about MSO and cyber, something that occurs to me is um, there's not one solution for, for MSO or cyber. Like, I mean, cyber is huge, right? MSO is huge. Every, everything you do with a signal, you could consider to be MSO, including cyber. Uh, of course, some people feel differently about that. And, and you can see where these policy decisions are affecting how what we're trying to do on the ground, um, how we're trying to come to a solution on the ground. But, but anyway, my point is um, we throw around these words 
I think that we're all every cyber's not going anywhere. Cyber is going to be a part of the DOD's life, right? Like it's going to be it's going to be sort of layered into everything that we do in the DOD. How we manipulate cyber as an AFSC is one minute layer of the of the stack of things that will happen in the cyber community and and how cyber will be kind of manipulated here and there. Um, even inside ST, I would argue, maybe a little bit at risk, but even inside ST, uh, I think that, you know, we're not the only cyber solution, that, that we're, we're a layer to the problem. Um, so uh, that, that's kind of how I see it today. I, that probably doesn't answer your question directly. Um, well, certainly, certainly a little technical for, for, for the folks out there uh, interested on the other side of the line. But. No, I mean, I, I, I get it because it, it's actually can be... If you don't know any better, it can be difficult to think that, you know, uh, cyber plays a role in our planes that are up there flying right now. You know, it, whether it's rudimentary or whether it's very detailed and, and um, heavily rooted in. But it's just, you know, you hear cyber and I know me, I automatically go back to South Park, you know, the character in South Park to their me, you know, Um <laughs> that is not that is not what we're talking about when we talk about you know SR doing cyber. This is um, it. It is definitely not the 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 person sitting in their mom's basement eating Cheetos and pounding Monster and stuff like that. But it, there are very tactical and technical aspects of cyber that SR and you're right, the special tactics community at large um, are able to. Um, inflict or influence on on an objective or, or an enemy, which is, you know, very, very, very beneficial, especially as we, we begin to move forward um, in, in, what, 2022 and, and on, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, any any system out there, so, you know, this I think this is safe to say, any, any system in the world is using some form of data right some some signal to move things back and forth to to exist i mean there's no system out there that doesn't have a air quotes cyber element to it right so now you apply that to what we do in special tactics for access um and and i think you have your answer and i again it's really hard to kind of get too detailed and and um but um but that's where we're looking uh access that's where we're looking and and specifically you know, in, inside the Air Force, you have you have many cyber elements. You have an entire AFSC that's that's um, dedicated to offensive cyber. You have an entire AFSC that's dedicated to, to def defensive cyber. You have information networking. You have all of these you know aspects of um, of cyber inside the Air Force. I mean, there's a cybercom. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so cyber is is massive, and even inside the Air Force, it is. But there are places on the planet where all those assets can't get to. Um, and as has always been our strength in special tactics and in soft, we can get, we have placement and access to places on the planet that most people can't get to. And that's where um, special reconnaissance comes in, in terms of cyber and EW for that matter. Yeah, I think it can be confusing for, for people out there. They, they've seen the movies where a guy with a laptop can access, you know, any system remotely. Uh, do all these things and, and and clear the way for the guys on the ground, the the door kickers to go do what they need to do. But I, I think the the reality is um, thinking of these things more like uh, uh, kinetic things that you're familiar with, and then just adding uh, the, the extra layer of of the non kinetic uh, offensive or defensive action required uh, for us to to really get after the entire ST mission set and and how SR plays a role in you know access recovery and strike and, and how we all kind of benefit each other using these, these similar techniques moving forward. If, uh, if you have anything to say about our, our, our role within the air force ST community. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, just using, um, the current command strategic guidance, you know, something that's very important for AFSOC moving forward is, well, Two things. First of all, I mean, it's been a pretty common message that, you know, what we've done over the last 20 years, although highly valued, is not necessarily the future for AFSOC. And, and that's not necessarily even determined by by AFSOC alone. I mean, it's the global environment that, that determines these things, right? So we got really good at, at being special tactics over the last 20 years. Um, we practiced really hard at it, and we all deployed a million times. And 
and uh, did it in real time. And, and, um, and, and now things are changing. So uh, we have to change too. But uh, one of the things that stands out in AFSOC's strategic guidance is, is you know, the level of attribution and, 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 and levying costs on adversaries. And I think that's where, um, you know, that's, that's the piece that I, where we fit in especially well is uh, not, not the AFSC alone, but maybe uh, especially the AFSC is kind of the, the scalable attribution aspects and, and, um, and uh, levying costs. Um, that's that's where I see us fitting in the best. You know, when when we built it, uh, when we built the AFSC, I think a common misperception is that we just took a bunch of South T guys and, and rebuilt the AFSC, um, and we did and we did that kind of in a bubble, right? Like that's what people think. Like we just had you know I don't know four or five kind of good friends around a, a table with with some uh, some drinks, and we and we rebuilt the AFSC. That is a gross uh misconstruence of events we had we built it with under the under the leadership of the 24 sal who, who kind of owns the the um the majority of the operational capability uh, special operations wing uh, 24 special operations wing inside of uh, afsoc under their leadership under their guidance we brought together a team and it really consisted of all of the afscs inside st including pararescue tech b combat control south t at the time now sr uh, we layered on that Intel people, including uh, SIGINT people, uh, uh, cyber people. We had pilots in there. We had, back then it was um, EW officers. Uh, we had STOs. We had CROWs, uh, special tactics officers, combat rescue officers, TACP officers. Um, we had just about, we had civilians. We had active duty military folks. We brought in guard people. So we had all this influence when we rebuilt the AFSC. And we really did it using every single piece of uh, commander's guidance that we could get our hands on. AFSOC guidance, SOCOM guidance, Air Force guidance at the time uh, it was General Goldfein put out his 2030 plan. Um, so we really, we, we, we tailored this thing um, to the needs uh, moving forward, including national, national security strategy, 2018. Uh, that, that, that was really the primary document that has driven all of this, right? As it should be. Uh, but that was the document that drove like, hey, what we've been doing for the last 20 years, although awesome, is not going to prepare us to use the military as a national instrument of power moving forward. So so that's what drives, as it should, all the subsequent guidance, the national defense strategy, um, the Air Force strategy, SOCOM strategy, AFSOC strategy, so on and so forth. And, and we dug into all that when we, when we built the AFSC, when we built it out. Um, and then... Uh, some staff nerdery for everybody out there. That's not the end. Then you have to coordinate it up and down chains several times over. Uh, Siegs, you know all about it. And um, it seems painful. It seems exhaustive, uh, but it should be. It should be painful. It should be exhaustive. Um, it should cause some uh, consternation and, um, and some frustration because uh, that's just what happens when you change things for the positive. So uh, I don't know if that answers your question directly, Siegs. I went on a rant, but um, but well, but all that to say, what we the way we have fit into uh, special tactics and AFSOC is uh, is really um, is really not done in a bubble. We we, we cross many many lanes to get to get where we are. Uh, hopefully, we incorporated as much feedback as was possible to get there. So. Yeah, and I, and I hope you understand. Like, I'm I'm trying to ask questions that we get. Um, you know, I think I know how everything works because I'm pretty arrogant, but. Hey, if, if, if combat control is going to seize an airfield to, to land planes, what does SR do, do during that time? Doesn't combat control just do everything? You know, like that type of question, like specifically uh, our role in uh, airfield seizure, uh, access, and then uh, PR, and, and then strike as well. Yeah, sure. So I don't, I mean, you know, I don't know that those types of – so I'm outside of my lane a little bit. I gotta I gotta defer because I don't work for AFSOC right now. I work for headquarters Air Force. And although we are the functional authority, we're not the command authority. Um, technically, SOCOM is the command authority. They have OPCON over the assets. So how they employ uh, special tactics and special reconnaissance is, is not necessarily up to the peripheral manager or the, or the uh, functional manager. But but I would say. Um, I, I wouldn't take it for granted that all those things are that as they've looked like, as they even look like today, will look like they uh, do tomorrow. I, I think there's potential that all those kind of mission sets um, get shaken up and, and refocused. Uh, that's not up to me. 
but I would but I would defer to AFSOC's uh, strategic guidance that um, prepares everybody for changes like that. I mean, that's kind of the point. It's it's not going to look the way uh, it always has. So, um, I, I don't know what a team might look like in the future. Uh, I, I I would say that it's not a given that a, that the same composition of the teams we send out today to do things are going to be the composition that we send out tomorrow. It could be the case that you need a, a special reconnaissance heavy team to go and do something, to get placement and access, to, to do something with EWO and cyber, or to just get people to a place where they can do something with uh, with something that's more combat control focused or, or TACP focused or pararescue focused or something else. Um, it could just as well be the case that you have uh, you maintain a combat control heavy team or a, or a pararescue heavy team to do uh, PR, to do um, airfield seizures, things like that. Um, but I guess the point is, I don't know if the question's answered yet uh, at the at the uh, at the unit level, at the operational level. They're they're still they're still experimenting with those things. I would say, you know, that's where we're at experimentation, and that's that's what the guidance is pushing out to. I mean, if you go look at SOCOM uh, General Clark's training guidance, uh, just from I think last year or the year before, he's very heavy on uh, conventional force, special operations forces. Uh, integration, interoperability, and interdependence. He calls it CFSOF I3, and that's not a new thing. That's not a General Clarkism. That goes back, uh, I think, a few commanders uh, for SOCOM. But really, I mean, really, since probably uh, Admiral McRaven, SOCOM has started to focus more on, hey, you know, SOF, although very kinetic for the last 20 years, um, that's not the intent for SOF. The, the intent is really to be more of a supporting force for uh, the supported force, which is conventional forces. Conventional forces do most of the work, right? Support soft like uh, typically supports. And when you take soft out of that box and you apply them um, in a larger scale, as we did uh, for the last 20 years, then you you certainly have uh, effects, but you have uh, pretty heavy effects on the force because we're inherently small, right? So if you're inherently small, it means you got to do more work uh, over over a same time over a, over a similar time span. So you really work uh, those people uh, hard and probably some of them uh, beyond the point where they should be worked. So um, I, I would say experimentation, getting closer to the force that comes from both SOCOM and uh, and AFSOC by force, I mean, conventional force. So for us in the Air Force, uh, for us in special reconnaissance, I think that means looking at how we get how we employ uh, air power for the benefit of SOCOM. Um, and I, I don't know that that's been our specific mission for the last 20 years. I think for the last 20 years, we've been really focused on um, just counterterrorism and, and really getting after um, you know bad bad folks out there. Uh, I think moving forward into 2035 and beyond, I think the focus is more um, not not that that mission's going away, and I'm I'm fairly certain that the strategic guidance doesn't say that doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, it says that mission is not going away. But it probably will be scaled back, and our focus will be more about getting airplanes to the places where airplanes need to get to, uh, or air power, that is, to the places where air power needs to get to. Um, so I, I think that's the I think that's what we're doing right now. I think we're all in experimentation mode and figuring out what a team looks like. Um, and I believe that's where the the commanders want us to be. But 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 I get questions from kids wondering if they're going to see combat if they join. I know. I'm sorry, but like, this is one of my, my favorite questions that we get, you know, like, Hey, if I join air force special warfare, um, w will I see combat? And that's always a tough question to answer. And, and, and I, I get accused of being super vague about SR specifically, uh, from the podcast. Um, uh, but, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like it, even when we were South T, if, if someone was like, Hey, am I going to see combat? It's like, maybe if, if you're joining as a combat controller, like, are you guaranteed to, to see combat and all these other things? But, uh, some of the expectations out there that are are, are kind of overflowing from GWAT. Uh, what would you tell those kids that that are asking those types of questions and and trying to get into the the, the coolest stuff possible uh, before they join? Yeah, it's a tough question. Um, I would say this: uh, if you want to come and do reconnaissance, um, special reconnaissance is a is a great place to do that. And reconnaissance is hard, man. It's it's hard. It's not always uh, glorious. As a matter of fact, uh, it, it's often inglorious uh, in the fact that you uh, do things that never make headlines. Um, so 
if you want to if you want to be in combat i mean that's awesome and um and that's a really great um uh place to start from but uh, i don't even know if special special uh, excuse me special operations is is the is the focus uh in terms of that if you really want to be in combat maybe you should be looking at uh an infantry division or or something like that i think special operations is moving to a place that's um you know you're going to be doing things that that uh that that do not always win you recognition um that, that's maybe the best way i can say it and on, along those lines you know we've talked a lot about this in terms of recruiting and and uh, what it means to what it means um how do we how do we like optimize recruiting for for those uh, sort of attributes that we're after and and this is only steve cox opinion now we're in steve cox land so um you can take it with many many grains of salt and then throw it in the garbage if you'd like but this is my opinion i think you know as we look at kind of the AFSCs today, you have attributes that stand out, right? Like pararescue guys, and, and this is very general. Wave tops, of course, there are exceptions, and, and I'm speaking in generalities at great risk. But pararescue men, uh, largely, if you go talk to those folks, they they want to save lives. That's what they want to do. They want to rescue people. It's, I mean, it's in their job description, right? That's, so they work very hard to do that, and they're absolutely a thousand percent dedicated to it. Impressively so. Um, combat controllers want to, this is it peaches you, please correct me where I'm off, but, uh, combat controllers want to, want to, they want to be involved in the fight, man. They want to, they want to fight. They want to, um, they want to, and that, like, they're usually, they love comms. They love integrating. Um, you know, they're, they're fighters. They're, they're warriors. Uh, TAC P is very similar. I think, uh, love to integrate. TAC P is like, an integrative personality, like that's their thing. They are integrators. Uh, special reconnaissance, reconnaissance, surveillance people. Um, I think uh, it takes a, a psychology, psychology that uh, you don't mind it being hard and you don't mind never, never getting credit for the things that you do. You don't mind doing hard things that will probably never be recognized. Um, and now we're sprinkling on that this technical capability, uh, a technical aptitude that, that maybe uh, isn't required um, elsewhere. But uh, that's how I kind of see those uh, lines. And they're not lines. It's all blurry. But uh, that's the difference in my mind. That, that's kind of the, the personality, the psychology that, that uh, we're going after for uh, special reconnaissance people. If you want to do combat, I mean, it's possible. It's certainly possible that that happens um, in a reconnaissance environment. You're generally trying to avoid combat. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you engage yeah. in combat in a reconnaissance environment, then you either did something wrong or you got caught or you're probably breaking contact or something like that. So I'm not trying to shy people away. It takes all those skills to, to be uh, it takes combat skills to be in a reconnaissance environment. Um, those are those are, uh, you know, a solid part of the foundation. But um but that's not that's not the focus for uh, reconnaissance surveillance, and uh, it's probably not the focus for soft. Yeah, combat is you know actual fighting, it for anybody whether it's Rangers, SF, MARSOC, SEALs, us, whatever. It is you know if you want to say right place, right time, or maybe wrong place, wrong time. Like like it really is. I mean, you can you there are SEALs that are out there that. Um, just NSF wrong. Like they just missed it. Like barely, you know, they, they left country and the next, the next mission, there was a big firefight. Like it's, it, you just don't know. There are PJs that have gone their entire career without a rescue. That's few and far between, but you know, there's controllers that have done the JTAC mission that have deployed that didn't get a chance to drop and never got in a fight. Maybe they got in a fight, but they never got a chance to drop because aircraft didn't make it there on time. Like it really is right place, right time. So, um, you know, that, that's just the reality of it. And then, so a couple of points on the things that you're talking about is like, and one, one thing that we, we don't talk about, and I don't think um, command chief Smith, uh, the SOCOM senior list has talked about, but um, you know, the different phases of, of military operations and soft generally is in the, the phase zero and phase one of, of military operations. So um, which is generally short of combat, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq was a little different thing because that was such a, a soft centric and soft heavy uh, mission set that happened to take 20 years. Um, but 
that was just not a one-off, but that's unlike what we would normally do. Um, and sorry, I'm just going down to things I wrote while you were talking. Uh, you're 100% correct about General Clark uh, and his vision because he sees it as soft. It's not just kicking doors and that kind of stuff. Um, because I was sitting in a meeting with him, um, and they were talking about recruitment for for soft. And one of the posters was your your typical. I think it was a ranger busting in a door, and it was a really cool picture, right? And he's like, "Okay, that represents a fraction of what soft does." Like as SOCOM as a headquarters, a fraction of it. And he goes, and that's not that picture, though is motivating and is a part of what we do. It is not everything that we do. And so we needed to branch out. So they changed it and they they integrated a lot of uh, cyber EW depictions as well as other soft capabilities. So that was pretty cool. Um, you're right. We evolve constantly to, you know, what we look like now is definitely not what we looked like two years ago. And two years from now, we will not look like what we do. And that's not just us. That's that's SEALs, SF, Rangers. That's everybody, right? That's just yes. the reality of it. Absolutely. And then I think it's unfair for you to say that this SR did not start on a bar, on a bar napkin because – or <laughs> it, I, because it definitely the, – the, the idea – started on a bar napkin because that's how most ideas start you get a couple couple people in the bar and they're like you know it would be cool and, th <laughs> and then the real work comes all the staffing and all the real late nights and grinding and pissing people off but it asks so there's some good things that start from bar napkins <laughs> no that's fair, fair. We, we did i mean there were some things that like we struggled through like you know the name um for example and i like <clears throat> like I said, the the, the Salty um, legacy is surveillance and or reconnaissance surveillance. That was always the foundation. The the difference is like what are you what are you reconnoitering? What are you surveilling? Right? Like so that's kind of what changed. And and the other piece that changed is really making sure that we are a jointly credible asset in terms of reconnaissance surveillance. And and to do that, you really got to set up the foundation correctly. Um, I don't think reconnaissance and surveillance is something that you dip your toes in. Like it's a, it's a commitment. Um, it, you can't, you can't sort of half-ass it. You, you really got a whole asset. And, uh, and so when we were going over the name, which was, that was kind of one of these bar napkin conversations pieces, but you know, what do we do? Do we, do we, do we come in soft or do we come in hard? And we decided to come in hard. Um, and, and, and knowing that, you know, we were going to catch some, some attention and some flack, uh, but ultimately that, uh, that hey, if we're gonna if we're gonna go into this, we should go all in as a community, and um, and uh, and it got support, and, and honestly, like that bar napkin conversation happened before I ever got to the seat, so I can't even claim credit. Um, I, I, I can't say I wasn't in the in the bar when we were writing on the napkin, but uh, but uh, I can't claim all that credit. Uh, I just picked up the reins. But you're right. No, you're but right what, what I what I do need though is that you know you have. You have PJs or Js. Like I need a, a good name instead of SR dudes because I, I can't. Like I got controllers. <laughs> I got Js. Like I need a real, you know, SR dude. Like it. That's what I use. But uh, yeah. we need we need another bar napkin to help with the the naming convention. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about like uh, special reconnaissance airmen, but then you're at SRA, which is kind of already used by the Air Force a little bit. So. Yeah. You know, there's a couple of things that floated around, but <laughs> the um the the one thing that that ties into Recce that we haven't touched on right now is the the kind of R or not RPA, I'm sorry, remote pilot, uh, but the small unmanned aerial systems, the the little drones, uh, yeah. and the different the array of different drones that we are we're kind of using. Um, yeah. Can you elaborate on some of that a little bit? Sure. Um, so as with all things, uh, this is, these are probably very disappointing answers. I'm just going to say that for people who are looking for uh, to dispel vagaries, like I'm not dispelling any vagaries. I'm just creating more. Um, but so the Air Force is going through a huge kind of revamp where we in A3S are, are leading that charge uh, as mandated by, um, well, our, our boss is the A3, but but this came out of a kind of an audit agency report that a, the Air Force is not programmatically established very well to uh, to manage the SWAS program. So 
Um, so we're looking at what that looks like uh, in the future. What you know, what should a you know a programmatically supportive program look like uh, from the Air Force's perspective? That's our charge. Um, but all that to say that um, we're working that out. So AFSOC is kind of the OPR, the, the primary responsibility right now for the, for the Air Force's SWAS program. Um, although that's changing, and I think A3S is picking up those reins, and, and it may move somewhere else so, uh, upon conclusion of our. Our analysis, but uh, but the whole SWAS program, I mean, jointly is, is shifting. Um, I mean, you guys know probably better than I. I'm not as techie as most people out there because uh, I'm I've gotten really good at typing over the last three years and less good at technical <laughs> stuff. But but um, man, there's so much going on with SWAS uh, group. The groups, there's talk of changing how the groups are structured. You know, for everybody out there, we have we have groups of of small UASs. Uh, unmanned aerial systems or aircraft systems. Um, it's basically the groups are, you know, for simplest terms, they're based on weight. Uh, there are some other factors um, that, that determine where, you know, a system falls within a group, but in the simplest terms are based on weight and the group one being the lowest weight. So your tiny little, um, you know, cock, not much bigger than a dragonfly systems. Those would be like group one up to a certain weight. I, I don't ask me to to rip out the numbers right now, but, <laughs> but, um, there are five of those and, the, you know, the group five being your, your big systems, um, and group one being the ones group two, maybe, maybe, uh, that we would be invested in today from a, an operator uh, point of view. Uh, you know, obviously we're more concerned with the smaller systems, but, um, we have it in our, in our training plan today that we're training on both uh, rotary and fixed wing systems. Although that's even that distinction is becoming muddy. Like, um, you know, it, it just everything is changing so rapidly. I argue from my perspective that all this talk about SWAS, cyber, MSO, AI, uh, machine learning, all that stuff is changing. And so it's going to be really hard in the future to, to kind of distinguish between like, you're not going to be able to point a finger at somebody and say, hey, so you do cyber, right? Like, because that might mean that you also like in what capacity? Um, it, that could just as easily mean typing on a keyboard as it could flying a SWAS, you know, five, five years from now. So I think all those things are sort of converging. Uh, we're putting things on these uh, platforms that do stuff that's uh, non-kinetic, uh, like cyber and, and EW. And then we're, we're looking at things uh, that work that way. We're looking at how AI uh, changes the game in terms of SWAS and uh, how systems communicate with a human and how systems communicate with each other. Um, what's the human interface in the future for a for a for a swarm of drones or something like that? All that stuff is 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 in the works. Uh, it's changing. We're not the only ones changing it, by the way. I mean, um, that stuff's changing globally. Today, we train on uh, rotary wing and uh, fixed wing systems. Um, we train on those systems in order to sense and collect from the environment. And we're also training on ways to use them uh, in a more kinetic fashion. So um, we're doing all that. All that stuff is 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 what we do today. What it's going to look like five years from now, man, I, I wouldn't even venture to guess. But I, I actually, I would venture to guess. I would guess that all those things that I just mentioned, this whole EMSO environment, uh, including cyber, SWAS, AI, it's all going to kind of merge. And we're going to we're going to see systems that are uh, feeding some sort of uh, brain uh, with all that data. Um, and I, it'll be interesting to see how the, how the human fits in that loop, uh, going forward, you know, but, uh, uh we're not there yet. So, uh, well, uh, that, that, there's, there's a vague answer to your pointed question. Well, but that kind of, uh, begs the question when, when we have access to all of these, uh, technological, um, tools and, uh, and, and, and all this other stuff, why, are we building the career field on top of this very low tech capability? Why is the foundation, the, the classical reconnaissance, um, is there truly a, a low tech solution to these high tech problems? Because it seems like for some people out there, if you don't have the high tech solution, then like, what, why, why are we putting our guys through this pipeline and gals and beating them up and, and teaching them the hardcore reconnaissance stuff when we have all this technology to do the job for us? That's a great question, man. Um, <laughs> great question. So, hmm. 
I'll start there. Um, you, so there, there are a few things out there uh, known as the uh, the soft truths, the, the pesky soft truths. Um, I think that's a good place to start. Um, there's a couple that apply to your argument or your question, Seeks. Uh, humans are more important than hardware. This is one that comes to mind. Um, if you go and operate in a environment, so we talk about this all the time, the fundamentals, right? And you could, you could, you, we could talk specifically about reconnaissance surveillance, which I, which I can and will. Um, but just to use a, a kind of a more um, well understood example, um, you guys both know this very well. Uh, but we all got really used to using GPSs, right, to navigate from location A to B. I mean, we do as humans in, in the world today. We like, I don't even. If you ask me how to drive, like, to some place around D.C., I might have a problem because I'm just used to following the blue line on the map, right? Like, it didn't used to be that way. Like, I, I remember growing up, I knew every road in my hometown. I knew how to get everywhere. You know what I mean? And, and now, I, you know, I've been living here for three years, and there are places that I can't navigate to, you know, on my own. I have to use the blue line. But what if that blue line gets taken away, right? Like, so what if you're out in the field and you're and all of a sudden something happens, some adversary turns something on from the sky, uh, beams down some electrons onto your position, and all of a sudden your GPS doesn't work anymore? Like, what do you do then? Like, do you just uh, lay down and die, or do you maybe try to fish out that small heavy thing that glows in the dark a little bit, and then <laughs> another thing that's made out of paper and with lines on it? and uh, try to figure out how to marry up those two things together. Um, I'm talking about a map and compass for, for some of the young folks out there, but, but uh, so like, that's, that's the simplest example, like, because you're never, you're never going to be, you can't predict what the adversary is going to do. Right. Uh, at least I think that's a safe approach. If you, if you approach a situation, believing that you uh, have the adversary kind of nailed down, you can predict everything that's going to happen. You're already at a disadvantage. Right. So, I think building in those fundamentals, building in um, those fundamentals that are that will save you when you don't have the techie systems that you you know you, you trained uh, to use. Um, that's critical to your survival and, and the and the and the um, success of the mission. So, yeah, soft truths. Humans are more important than hardware. Um, you you soft, a soft cannot be mass produced. I think that's another big one. Like, it's too late to train on fundamentals when you're when you're trying to go into war. Right, like you or, or go into some environment. It's too late. You better have them down, um, and that's why we we hammer them so hard uh, up front, and that's why we make it hard physically. Um, yeah, I don't know. Does, does that get close? Yeah, well, and, and in, in my brain, the, uh, the the great power competition that we talk about or the near peer environment by definition means that if we have SWAS capable of these things, they probably have the antidote to that that technology, right? And I think when we talk about near yeah. peer. We're, we're mostly speaking about the, the technological um, advantages that we used to have, I think. Uh, but especially when we're talking about SWAS and a few of the other things in EW, um, even when we went to Syria, I remember getting briefings on that. And, and it was basically like, what are we going into? And it's like, you know, worst environment imaginable, you know, type thing. And it's not like they were, <laughs> and, you know. Scariest environment. Yeah, scariest environment. But like, um, I, and to me, that's where it comes back. Like, if you can't work... Um, you know, HF radios, if you can't, if you can't move through an environment and understand the, uh, the, the technological technology that the adversary is bringing to bear. Um, I, I think relying on those things is, is dangerous. And if, if the last 20 years has taught us anything, I think it's that, uh, even with our technology, uh, um, advantage over the folks that we're fighting in Afghanistan, that there's, there's ways around it. There's still ways to, to affect the enemy using the low tech, uh, solution. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, if it was me, I would be looking, if I was going into a fist fight, right? Like I'd be looking to take away, if I knew the person I was going in the fist fight with had relied on something in particular, you know, like it was, it was fundamental to their ability to fight. That's the first thing I would try to take away. Right. Like, so, so if we go into a fight and, and it's, it's the perception of the enemy that we're completely reliant on our tech or our comms, or some node out there, right? That's the first thing they're going to hunt down. So I think those are the other concept that comes to mind and you're pulling the string seeds is uh, the idea behind um, uh, decentralized execution. And, and so if, if you've got all your, it's, it's classic, right? This is like principles of war, man. You put all your stuff in one place. That's a, that's a huge mistake because 
uh, that's a that's a great place for an enemy to go and, and blow your stuff up. So the the more you can kind of if you put that in terms of like techie capability and fundamental like hard stuff to do uh, navigating through terrain without a GPS. Uh, if you if you invest all your all your capability all your training in a in a techie piece of equipment, then you've just given the enemy a great target, right? Like so so that's why I think you have to be able to survive as a, as a human first without all that stuff before you later it on, um, and that's why we hit fundamentals so hard. And, and frankly, like that's what the reconnaissance community respects, and, and I believe that's the reason why because they see. Um, when you go out into a, a denied environment, a near peer or a denied environment, and, and that's a really complex movement from A to B, and you have to do it uh, in the dark, and you have to do it, um, you know, in really complex terrain, and it's cold, and you don't have much food, and you're running out of water. Like these are the problem sets that a reconnaissance element uh, runs into, and it's real. It, it, you know what I mean? You can't that that's you, you can't prepare for that stuff when you're when you're out there doing it. You have to be prepared for it before you go yeah. fundamentals yeah absolutely and you know and i know i know the position you sit in right now like you know you're up at dc dc you're not kind of at the squadron but your position actually provides a lot of um the, you're kind of you know me at the squadron level I'm, I'm down and in i'm focused on the people i'm focused on operations uh directly whereas you know you're able to focus on kind of up and out and look towards the future and plan towards the future of SR and, and SP as a whole. And I would not want to put you in a position where you're, you're answering the question for the community, but in, in Steve Cox's opinion, like where do you see the future of special tactics in general going? Um, and, and maybe with a, with an SR flavor, if you want. Yeah, sure. Um, I can try that. So <laughs> I, I'll say this, I, I think special tactics is going to get closer to the air force. I'll say that. I think like, you know, historically peaches, you and seeds, both you guys, like, um, you know, how many, how many big air force exercises, the special tactics play in historically, not very red many. flag, green flag. Yeah. Not, yeah. Many. not, not that many. I, I think, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. I think, uh, that's safe to say, I think special tactics can and should, uh, participate in those things more because that, that becomes the value now to, to SOCOM, especially in a resource constrained environment. Um, where we can't we can't all do everything. We have to we have to kind of scale back and, and, and maximize the resources that we have on hand. And and for us, that's the Air Force. Those are the resources we have on hand. You know, that that may not be as sexy as is kind of the things that have happened. You know, for the last twenty years. And I understand the the questions about comments or combat. Excuse me. We get those like from special tactics guys, right? Like the young guys are like. Mm -hmm. It's not only just people coming off the street. I mean, it's the, it's the young people in, in special tactics today ask those same questions. They want to do that stuff uh, because they see they see peaches and they see GZ and they see, uh, you know, all the freaking heroes, man, that are out there like um, that have done it. And, and they want to they want to replicate that. It's just not the environment that exists today. But uh, who knows where it will be in five years. Uh, but that, now I'm rambling again. I, I think getting closer <laughs> to the Air Force, I would say that, like. And, and I think the Air Force understands that, which is a very good place to be. I think that um, historically, like, there's been kind of a divide, like, especially maybe for special tactics, like, how well known were we in the Air Force? Pretty, we we're pretty um, obscure, right? Like, I think so. I mean, I could be wrong, but um, what that, what the way that that impacts us or can impact us negatively is that if we're, if we're obscure to the Air Force, when it comes time for the Air Force to tighten its belt, like, what's going to get, what's going to get shoved out? The obscure things, right? Um, at least I think so. But nowadays, uh, we're, we're having success kind of promulgating the, the ideas, special tactics ideas and concepts and concepts of operation. There are a lot of success kind of moving those around the air staff. And, and we've infiltrated the air staff uh, more so than we ever have with, with combat controllers, TACPs, pararescue guys, special tactics officers, special reconnaissance guys. So, um, that's that's a big part of it, man. Is is kind of building the narrative of what special tactics is. I think I think moving forward, like where the Air Force has historically sort of just accepted that special operations are going to occur, and they're going to shape the environment appropriately, and uh, it's kind of a magic, you know, fairy dust thing. Like uh, you know, hey, soft happened and and it worked. It was successful. Okay, we can talk about other things now. Let's talk about you know the big 
big muscle movements for the Air Force. That's not an accepted um, fact anymore. And I believe that's a good thing. We shouldn't just accept that, you know, shaping operations are going to be effective or that soft is going to be effective or that aft soft is going to be effective. Because if we just accept that, then we don't, we don't test it. We don't measure it. You know, there's no, there's no ability to um, figure out where the gaps are. You know what I mean? Like, no, actually, we shouldn't just accept that because, hey, look, when you when you actually apply these metrics to the problem set, guess what? We got a lot of gaps, and those gaps are fillable by by staffing, by programming in the Air Force, and and of course in SOCOM as well. So I, you know, I, there there is some kind of funniness or um, tension, friction when it comes to kind of soft uh, responsibilities. Uh, you know, SOCOM unique or SOCOM peculiar. Um, stuff and Air Force peculiar stuff, and, and that's a relationship w- which involves some friction. But ultimately, I believe like stepping closer to what the Air Force is doing helps re- uh, relieve some of that friction and, and really ends up giving SOCOM the product that they they really are asking for, which is air power. Yeah, solving Air Force problems. That's exactly. and that's what we're we're looking to do, and we're trying to solve everybody's problems. But so on that note, like what would be, uh, yeah, I know if you solve everybody's problems, you're solving nobody's problems, but um, yeah. So with that, um, what is some advice that you would give to the kind of uh, 15 to 35 year old that is either looking to join up as SR or if they're cross training, you know, get SR. Yeah. So, that's a great question too, Peaches. I, you know, this might be a, a standard kind of uh, boring answer, but I'll start here and, and maybe I'll ramble into something that's actually meaningful. Um, like the, the physicality, don't discount the physicality. Um, hopefully nothing I've said today gives the uh, wrong impression that we're, we don't need to be as strong. Uh, that's absolutely not the case. I, I think hopefully my points have been that we need to be just as strong in, in the fundamentals and on the physical side of things. Cause because the techie stuff is what the enemy is going to try to take away from us. So um, I, I think being physical and I mean, this is maybe a little cliche, but man, when you, when you're, when you're there physically, there's a, there's, everybody is going to be uh, dealt some mental blows in training, right? You're going to, that's the point. The point is to deal you. The point is not to deal you physical blows. Maybe it is a little bit, but, but the real point <laughs> is to, to deal you mental blows so, and to see how you work through those things mentally, emotionally, um, intellectually. And the, the, the best way that we can deal mental blows in a training environment is by, is by stressing you physically. So, so if you prepare yourself physically for, for training, then you have diminished the, the requirement for your brain <laughs> when it comes, when you're dealt the, you know, the physical stress, your, your brain is able to function more clearly uh, you're more emotionally there. Um, that's the real value of being prepared physically. It's not just so you can do more push-ups or more pull-ups. It's so that when you are dealt the mental situation, the, the mentally stressful situation, your physicality is not a problem. Uh, if your physicality is a problem, then man, you, you're probably you're probably not going to get through the mental issue that you're really being dealt with. So, um, I think that's the 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 most important thing. The, the, the other important thing is if you have questions about cross-training or, or getting in, uh, please contact the, the career field managers, me specifically, um, especially for special recon- those interested in special reconnaissance. Uh, Trent Siegmiller is a great source, man. He understands that whole process extremely well. Um, I'm a great source. Uh, Chief Will Reisner on the AFSOC side, uh, just a shout-out to, to RR. He's a great source. Don't hesitate to contact um the functional uh players just because we're you know up on some staff that seems ethereal like we're here to answer (laughs) questions um and i always have to caveat of course if you're cross training go through your supervisor man don't keep people in the dark because you'll just make them mad and and you'll screw up your uh your chances so (laughs) but yeah I, i think that's it i i wouldn't even say like the way we're leaning in right now i we haven't exactly figured out like what the uh, technical kind of competencies um, that are required. I mean, I would, you know, I have some ideas, but right now uh, we're not requiring any special um, aptitudes in terms of cross training or even coming in for say electrical capability or, or cyber capability. We will train that stuff. We'll train it. Um, and it's trainable. 
So we're not doing that today. That could change in the future, but we're not doing that today. It's a it's a singular uh, general requirement. Um, and of course, the, the physical requirement being probably the most important thing. But, yeah, yeah, we're on a, a level one train up and we're about to do night slicks, right? Like that's that's where we're at before we start slapping all the rest of the stuff on. But right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But uh, but yeah, that, that bandwidth thing that you talk about physicality and all that, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and basically everything else that you said. And we, we've come to the end of our time and I, I'm trying not to be weird about it, but I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, you know, we, we obviously know each other, but I, I hope this answers a bunch of the questions for everybody out there. And uh, we might have to have you on again based on the amount of questions and, uh, that we're going to get. And uh, they're just because of how vague you've been, you know, about everything. So, <laughs> way to go. But uh, that's yeah. it for us. Yeah, yeah so Steve, thanks for having me, man. And um, I apologize for the vagueness. We'll we'll tighten it up. We'll get the questions an- answered specifically. Uh, <laughs> but you know, we live in a gray zone. That's it. And uh, hey, so I appreciate y'all listening. Go ahead and leave us a review and uh, like and subscribe. And we will catch you all next time. Train hard. <laughs>